0: Welcome to episode four of Unframed. I am your host, Anthea Pockroy. In today's episode, I chat to writer and art critic Matthew Blackman. He is based in Cape Town, so we had a chat over Skype. My initial interest in interviewing Matthew at this time is that he has been the leading journalist in the recent Zeit's Controversy. We chat about this and his initial skepticism in 2015 regarding the museum. We also talk about the South African arts industry, his concerns about the market driving artists into producing more commercial work, the Venice Biennale controversy of 2011 and about his own personal writing. In the show notes, I've placed a link to Matthew's website, as well as a link to many of the articles Matthew has written about the South African arts industry over the years. Enjoy listening to my conversation with Matthew. So I had a moment of fear when I was doing research on this conversation. Firstly, because you are an interviewer, so I'm interviewing the interviewer. So I also listened to an audio clip of what I think was a short story that you wrote called The Law and the Hawker.
1: Oh, yes. And
0: you have the most beautiful speaking voice, so (laughs) feeling a little bit intimidated. But, um, yeah, how does it feel to be on the other side?
1: I mean, I have been interviewed before on television on a couple of occasions. And, yeah, I mean, I've always found being interviewed – more nerve-wracking than interviewing people. It's it's always a strange experience to be kind of recorded on, on any kind of level.
0: So just to begin, for our listeners, can you please tell me who is Matthew Blackman?
1: Oh, that's quite a difficult question. I mean, I guess um, I am the sum total of um, having grown up in South Africa, having grown up as the child of an academic um, in South Africa during apartheid, I mean that's kind of where I, I guess, I come from. What I am at the moment, I have no idea. I mean, I, I you know, I still, you know, struggle with that concept of individuality and who I am on a kind of daily basis so I don't know how to really answer that question you know I could give a list of things I'm a writer I'm a journalist of some variety you know I'm still in a process of trying to figure that out
0: do you refer to yourself as a writer a critic a journalist what do you identify as
1: If I'm pushed, I guess I refer to myself as a writer. I've been involved in academia for a a long time. And yeah, I've been involved in journalism. I don't know. I mean, I guess in the old days, what people may have referred to somebody like me, although it sounds too kind of grand a word, is an intellectual, but you know. That used to mean somebody who was relatively independent, who wrote their thoughts down and wrote some journalism and wrote some books. And, you know, I, I guess that's kind of what I am. But it sounds too kind of grand a term these days to refer to oneself as an intellectual.
0: Yeah, you should claim it, though. <laughs> put, it on oh, the, well. put it on your website.
1: <laughs> Matthew
0: Blackman, intellectual. intellectual.
1: Yeah. OK, it sounds pretty good.
0: It does. Do you think it has anything to do with the context of where the piece of writing appears? If your writing appears in a newspaper or magazine, it's journalism. And if it features on an art website, it's criticism. Do you think that has anything to do with the label?
1: You know, we live in in an era which, despite all of the sort of teachings of of the last sort of 60, 70 years, we still struggle for this idea of a core identity or a core label. Or one of the elements of, you know, when I said I was the son of an academic, you know, he was what I guess is referred to as a kind of 20th century liberal. And that group of, of liberals didn't believe in things like core identities. They believed that the world and human beings were filled with this kind of fractured identity, that there were pulls of loyalty to one's family and loyalty to one's country and loyalty to one's laws of the country. And all of these ideas were contesting with one another to make, you know, a person who had no sense of a core identity. I feel very kind of strongly that that is part of how I understand the world. I don't understand when somebody says to me, for example, oh, you're a writer. I find that quite an odd thing for somebody to have said that about me because I don't think of myself as these things. I kind of struggle with that idea of identifying what it is. You know, we've got ourselves into a very kind of strange period of history where things like journalism and where you publish are important.
0: In your description, you haven't really mentioned arts writer or art critic or art journalist, but that's how I know you. I know you yeah. through the arts industry. I mean, when I scrolled through your website, I noticed articles and reviews on a wide range of topics, including historical literature reviews and personal and political short stories what are your areas of interest as a writer?
1: I started off wanting to be a novelist. You know, I still want to be a novelist, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I got into arts writing almost by accident. My sort of fields of interest are, I guess the, the real thing that brings it all together is this idea of, of liberalism. I'm interested in liberal figures throughout history, whether they be Saul Plyke or Albert Camus or George Orwell, or I would even Put, you know, William Kentridge and, you know, all of these kinds of people who have struggled in the past with sort of identifying values and all those are the things that interest me. For me, I'm interested in history. I'm interested in, you know, literature. I'm interested in art. All the people that I'm actually interested in have a certain kind of idea lingering in what they've written or the way they've lived or what they have made art about, you know. So that's, I guess that's the kind of unifying glue in some ways, It's that I'm interested in people who are, you know, who were interested in this idea of multiple values and fractured identities and confusion, which I think, you know, ultimately that a slightly autobiographical interest in that I, I struggle with all of those ideas being white South African coming from a a Catholic family but having grown up an atheist and having Irish heritage and different you know I don't know what all of that means you know like I don't I, I struggle to identify a kind of meaning and I'm interested in all people who've been interested in that kind of confusion so I guess that's what joins all of my work together.
0: What has your journey and relationship to writing in the arts been?
1: So it originally started off because I you know I hung out with a lot of artists and um, when I was living in England my partner at the time was an artist and then I hung out with artists in South Africa and I suddenly realized you know I could write about art and actually make money which you can't really make money writing about too many things to do with art and literature so that's kind of where it began where I realized that I could write reviews and and that actually you know magazines paid for for these things as opposed to what I'd been doing in England, which was working in libraries and publishing houses, and I was writing for free for sort of strange, small literary magazines yeah. You know, I suddenly realized, oh, you know, that I could actually get paid for writing.
0: Sorry, when was this? How long ago did you start? Because you were just in England now doing your PhD. Were you in England before?
1: So, yeah, I lived in England on a couple of occasions okay. uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s and then in the sort of mid 2000s again.
0: So when did you start writing in the arts? When was this realization?
1: Uh, in about 2008 or 2009 was when I started writing in South Africa about art. Yeah, then I got involved with art throb and and that was the progression.
0: And the second part of the question, what is your relationship to writing about the art?
1: So I think, you you know, I came back to South Africa in 2008. I I entered a world and I made friends with some artists and I, I suddenly realized, you know, how sophisticated the South African art world and artists actually were. And in a way, they seemed to me to be more engaged than most South African writers. And they seemed to be more aware of, you know, world trends of contemporary art of of actually their practice. I think it's something to do with the educational institutions. They seem to have taught artists about their practice and what they were actually trying to accomplish. And also in relationship to what was happening in the rest of the world, which I had never really seen that in South African literature before. So I became very kind of engaged with with that idea and I was very impressed with it. You know, over the years, I think some of that has kind of dissipated slightly and I think the market has now totally overridden a lot of those sophisticated, interesting ideas has been swamped out by essentially kind of market-driven artwork, which, you know, I think is a shame. But I think in 2008, you know, the market wasn't that important. I think artists were largely making art because they wanted to make art. The overriding idea was not the market. And they were actually making, I think, quite interesting art.
0: Can you give some examples? Who comes to mind when you think about that time as interesting?
1: So the group that I made friends with, Cameron Platter, Daniel Holter and and Ed Young, you know, I was quite interested in what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I think that for me personally, I think that now Zimbabwean artists seem to me to be more interesting than a lot of South African artists like Mishek Musanvu and other Vavahira.
0: Tell me a bit more about the Cape Town art scene. I mean, being based in Joburg myself, I haven't really spent a lot of time there. Mm. And the names that you've just mentioned are, you know, the names that come up in the scene. So can you maybe just describe the Cape Town art scene to me a little bit, maybe in comparison to Joburg? I know you haven't really lived here, but I know you're very aware of what's happening up here.
1: In some ways, they may have started in the same place. You know, I think the concerns of some of the, the group that I just mentioned and, and what was happening up in Joburg was probably quite similar. I think that there was a kind of division at some point. I'm not sure quite how this happened was that suddenly the Cape Town art world became very commercially driven and very object driven and i think there's been a real kind of obsession i guess in cape town about you know making objects whether it's printmaking or painting or you know multimedia kind of work making it and then selling it through a gallery and i think mm. joburg for whatever reason i am not really sure why you know sociologically why this happened the artists up in joburg in some ways shunned it and became you know more conceptually driven, more studio focused.
0: Do you think tourism has something to do with the market in Cape Town?
1: I think so. I mean, I think there's certainly when the original Cape Town art fair began, you know, lots of people were saying things like, oh, you know, this could be the Miami of Africa or this could be the Basel of Africa. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you you know, what to me doesn't make sense is that, you know, Johannesburg is far more commercially driven than Cape Town. You, You know, I'm talking about financial services and the pure economics of it. I don't know why that hasn't kind of translated into artists being more kind of commercially driven. I, I mean, I do feel very kind of strongly that Cape Town artists have in the last 10 years been more commercially driven than, than Joburg artists. But I mean, I can't. Maybe the Joburg artists, it's a kind of reaction against gross commercialization of Johannesburg. Also, there were a whole lot of young commercial galleries that started here that really pushed the idea of, you know, selling work.
0: I think it must have something to do with tourism because there's just a lot more people that are passing through Cape Town that are willing to buy art. That's, that's my theory.
1: It might also be something to do with Michaelis. I was worked at Michaelis for qu- quite a while, and I often encountered students saying, you know, we want to have classes on how to run a business. We want to have classes on how to sell our art to galleries. And to me, I was completely confused by this. Uh, you know, I was like, well, this is just not what a university does or should have any interest in doing. I mean, if you want to do that, you should go to the business school." And maybe the business school can run art and business courses. Yes, I think
0: there is a course like that, actually, through Michaelis. Mm. I hear you, but I do think that the university sometimes misses the reality of what it means to go out after graduating and make a living from your practice?
1: I mean, I think that group that with Dan Holter and Cameron, you know, they, they were the first group of artists, I think, to really grow up with a sense of, I can actually make a full-time living out of making art. At Penny Siopus's exhibition at, at the National Gallery a few years ago, William Kentridge gave the opening speech and he talked about, you know, how they had both exhibited in a pizza restaurant And that was the big prize in the 19, probably early eighties, I would say. Um, that was that, you know, they would all exhibit at this pizza restaurant. That's where artists were at that stage. Nobody thought, well, I could have a something called an art career. You know, you would make art and then normally have some kind of other job. Maybe you would teach at the university or do some, you know, design work for, you know, some publisher or something, something like that. You know, now we live in a, a world where people think that this is a career. You know, there is a something called being an artist, like there is something called being a lawyer,
0: But don't you think now that we have this idea of being an artist that one needs to have those kind of more business skills in order to be an artist, to do very pragmatic things? I mean, the university teaches us to think and question and conceptualize, which is great, but that's, in my opinion, only not half – it's maybe yeah. like seventy percent of it. <laughs> you know, there's thirty percent that actually is being professional and, you know, not being taken advantage of by galleries and knowing how to, you know, invoice and budget and save yeah. and
1: look, I think those are possibly important I mean, they are obviously important things, but to me they're kind of foreign. Maybe it's just because, you know, that I'm in my sort of now mid 40s. And, you know, it's that seems to me a very kind of strange way of approaching the world. But I mean, you you are right. I just always find it strange when an artist is invoicing people and acting in this kind of professional way. I don't know. it, it, It confuses me, I guess. I, I just worry that that it then becomes the focus of what artists are doing. Yes, They're yes. worried about a career. And what artists should be worried about is their work, not a career. And I think, you know, with that comes a whole lot of pressures like galleries. And, I, you know, I've definitely seen this over the last, you know, five or six years. Galleries start pressurizing artists who have made work that has sold well that then gallerists are like, no, we want that same work being produced. And then the person thinks, well, you know, if I'm to be professional and carry on my career, I must carry on making the same work that sells, not rather what artists should be doing is trying to push through that and trying to explore something past what they have produced and what has sold in the past. And, And, you know, like these are the some of the issues that I have
0: still related to the Cape Town art scene so you have been the primary voice the prominent journalist uncovering the Zeitzmacher controversy that was exposed in May 2018 Mm -hmm. but you first wrote about this interest and your curiosity and skepticism about the museum in May 2015 in an open letter to Jochen Zeitz and Mark Kutzia so can you just (laughs) tell me a little bit about those initial concerns that you had and that you raised in that open letter three years ago and how these concerns have manifested or not manifested since.
1: Yeah. Where we are now is quite different in some ways to where we were then, although I think some of my concerns back then were influenced by my worries about Mark personality. You know, my original concern was that if this Zeitz-Marker institution was going to call itself a museum, that they must then subscribe to museum practice. And that practice, as far as I could see, was not one that was happening there. And one of my huge concerns was the fact that they were calling themselves the Museum of Contemporary Art Africa, you know, its links to Africa were tenuous other than, you know, Mark Kutsia was a South African and he was deciding on what was going to be in that museum and that he was taking no input or consultation with anybody else other than himself and that I I strongly felt that this wasn't the way a museum should practice and that it needed to have a far better structure in place and a far more kind of consistent museum structure in place before it could start calling itself a museum. And, you know, I just didn't see that happening and it didn't seem to be on the cards. You you know, that problem played out in that it was only Mark Coutier. He then had a few young curators around him who were recent graduates. You know, I, I just felt that back then in 2015, that, that you know, this wasn't going to be a museum. It was If they called themselves, you know, Zeit's private collection, what problem would I have had with that nothing, I would have just said, right, so it's a private collection and you showing it in a very, you know, grandiose building. But they didn't. They were trying to suggest that they were something like the Tate or the Guggenheim. You know, my point was, you're not the Tate and you're not the Guggenheim. Your structure is simply not there. And I want to know what you are putting in place to develop this structure. And the the sad aspect of it was that they decided not to respond to the letter. I always felt that they didn't respond to because they didn't want to be held accountable. You know, this was my my issue. And I guess one of the, the elements of what I hopefully have done in the art world, which is, you know, to try and hold people to account. Yeah. You know, I think in the art world, there's far too little of holding institutions and galleries and the Department of Arts and Culture to account. And, you know, I felt that that was something valuable to do. That's where it began. I mean, you know, there were a lot of other issues that were manifestable manifesting around sites.
0: What other issues?
1: You know, I, I questioned the funding of it and who was funding it. You know, I questioned what the galleries were doing at the time. I mean, I don't think this actually happened in the end. But at the time, what certainly the Cape Town galleries were doing were clearing out all the artists who didn't seem to fit with Mark Coetzee's vision of where he was taking the museum. And they were desperately scrambling around to find artists who they could sell to Mark as contemporary art Africa. Mm. And I found that incredibly worrying. You know, as it turned out, I think there were a lot of bad relationships between the museum and many of the galleries. And many of the galleries then turned away from Mark as a result of this. And it didn't quite happen in the way that I thought it was going to happen. But my concern was that every single gallery in Cape Town would look like a mini, you know, Zeitz Mocker, which had a very kind of specific look and a very kind of specific feel.
0: What does Mark's vision appear to be for the museum? What kind of work is he collecting?
1: I mean, at the time, it had two strains to it. One was adornment and fashion and clothing and how art related to fashion and clothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was Atti's work and Andeepa's work. And, and then there was this, what somebody referred to me as the other day, something called late photography, which they described as, you know, kind of studio setups of the artist. Taking photographs of themselves in various costumes.
0: Yeah, so that's Kudzanai, Ati, Mahal,
1: Mahal, and and then Cyrus, a guy from yes. from Kenya. So mm. it it all seemed to be going that way. Late
0: photography is that a term that's been used?
1: No, it's <laughs> not. They just referred as we refer to things as kind of late capitalism. So, and I didn't see anything else. I had had a meeting with somebody and I knew that there was not going to be a focus on painting and that people like Mishek Masanvu and the Zimbabwean painters that were all sort of coming out at the time were going to be overlooked. I mean, it turned out that he has he did buy some of Mieshek's work in the end, but I suspect that had something not to do with his view on art, but on who was there. anyway. I don't I don't want to get into the speculation as to just how that happened, but yeah, yeah I mean, there, okay. was, there was something to do with who was selling the work.
0: Who should have Zeitz been accountable to with regards to their museum policies and the way that art is acquired?
1: You know, they don't need to necessarily be responsible to to anybody in particular. I mean, I think they, they need to be responsible to the public. They have set themselves as a public benefit organization. So, you know, Mark at one point in an interview said that they were being held to the standards of the Association for Art Museum Directors when I went and looked at at all of the policies that they, that institution in America has, I mean, Zeit has run roughshod over all of those policies. It has absolutely no relationship to those policies at all. So, you know, I, I don't want to destroy the opportunity that is there to create a fantastic museum that Africans and South Africans can be proud of. I think, you know, that's what I want it's to be. I'm not here to knock it down. I, I see that there is something deeply wrong happening there and I, you know, I felt the need to bring that out. Obviously, as a critic one is always going to see certain things that I personally think are wrong, but I see that with the Tate modern, but it, at least the Tate has proper policies in place and behaves in the fashion that a museum should behave in. You
0: yeah. Know? So the fact of Mark Cossier being accused of inappropriate Appropriate behavior and sexual harassment. That's a kind of a separate issue almost to the bigger museum policy and acquisitions and the collection representing what it's saying it is yeah. but isn't. So, do you kind of see those as two separate issues?
1: Well, I mean, I think at the core of one of the problems at sites was unfortunately Marx personality Mm. Um, you know one of the things that he wasn't prepared to do was to listen to anybody and he was he became a law unto himself and I think that manifested itself in the behavior that he seems to have propagated there and you know what he's done I think that the two in many ways are separate but what links the two is the personality of unfortunately Mark here and I mean this did not need to happen he became clearly too powerful. And my original point in 2015 was that you have set up an institution with one person who has the potential of becoming too powerful. And, yeah. you know, that did play out. I mean, it played out in a slightly different way to what I was saying it would play out to. Yes. But it's still, you know, an issue of power and, and what he did with that power.
0: How does Zeitzmacher redeem itself? How can it redeem itself going forward?
1: You know, I just personally feel that they must open themselves up to accountability. They must come out and, and say what's happened there. And they must put a policy in place which reflects what a museum should be doing. I mean, for, for me, that is the sum total of what I would like to see now is for them to say, look, we've, we've made some mistakes and now we're going to put a policy in place that reflects good museum practice.
0: Who's actually running this museum? Who, who is the board of trustees that they always speak about?
1: I mean, the board of trustees that make the decisions there are David Green of the waterfront, CEO of the waterfront, Jonathan Bloch, and then there is Jochen Seitz and I have completely forgotten his wife's name, but his wife. The dynamics of that is very strange for an African art museum is that, you know, David Green is Scottish, Jochen Zeitz is German, and his wife is English. Um, uh, Jonathan Bloch is, you know, South African, but, you know, white. You know, they, I, they, they need to get the house in order. I mean, it's heading towards, I mean, it really is a PR disaster. And, you know, they need to come out like KPMG, like McKinsey, and like all of these institutions. Just come out, be open to what your policies are and what you're going to do to correct it. Don't try and hide away and pretend these things aren't happening. It's only going to get worse for them.
0: I think some of the other criticism that's been coming out of Zeitz is showing artwork from very young emerging artists that are not established. And we have no idea whether they're going to be around in 10 years. Yeah,
1: uh, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, they, they need to set up a policy. That has is inclusive, but also that has some kind of art historical background. You know, mm. they need to establish what they're doing. Um, Mark's curatorship and who he purchased the, these young artists, who he's bought all of their work, which is deeply peculiar and concerning, and and just incredibly bad practice. They need to set up and identify some kind of core set of art history parameters around what they're doing and then say, OK, look, you know, we're going to buy young artists out of graduate exhibitions and, you know, we're going to do. But, but like to buy their entire exhibitions at such mm-hmm. a young age, I mean, for all we know, Ruby Swinney might go off and be a dentist. You know, like, I mean, yeah. this could happen. You know, she, she might never paint another artwork in the rest of her life and she may disappear. And the only institution that would hold her and hold all of her work is Zeitzmocker, which is absolutely sort of confounding. I mean, it just makes no sense. And that they, they've actually identified it as something worth collecting and worth preserving for posterity. If they wanted to do an exhibition of young, up-and-coming South African artists, and maybe they bought one work of each of those, they identified eight of them or ten of them, and they went, okay, these are some artists that we think are going to be kind of collectible. I'd have
0: no problem with that. Yeah, that, that, that makes that. sense. That makes sense, yeah.
1: But to buy all of these two young artists, all of their work is odd. And this is nothing to say about those young artists as artists. My criticism of them is kind of irrelevant. But this is the problem. One can't really establish their value as yet. So why are they being upheld in this manner?
0: Given your position in the Zeitsmacher situation, you do have a history of being a kind of champion for outing the wrongs and pointing out lack of transparency and, as you said earlier, making people accountable to their actions. You picked up, I think, in 2011, the corruption around the Venice Biennale. Tell me a bit more about the Venice Biennale and and what transpired. You can tell us a little bit about it and then how, how did it actually all end?
1: South Africa hadn't participated in the Biennale since 1995. The Department of Arts and Culture had always said that they had no money for it, that they weren't interested in participating in it. And that had gone on from 1995 to 2011. Then all of a sudden they were interested in it. A new head of the Department of Arts and Culture, Paul Mashatile, took over. Suddenly, Mona Mcquena was kind of parachuted into Venice with some of his artists and associated artists
0: and it all happened very, very quickly. I remember yeah,
1: no, I mean it just it suddenly was a thing that was it was you know there was an email that I uncovered from the Department of Art and Culture in December saying, "No, we're not participating in it, we do not have the budget for it." There is no way we're going to participate in it to about the 2nd of January. Suddenly, oh, Muna McWenna and these three artists are going to participate in it. Originally, Muna said that he wasn't being funded by the Department of Arts and Culture. So the original problem was, oh, you are just taking your own artist's. And, you know, you are going to promote them. The Venice Biennale is not about a gallerist taking their own artists, you know, to the Biennale. It's about representing your country in some sort of bizarre form. And Muno would then, you know, promote these artists. Their prices would obviously go up and um, they would become sort of famous international names all of a sudden. Mm. And they were all people who were associated with him. I then took on an investigation into it for various reasons, because I felt nobody else was going to do anything about it, and then discovered that, oh, no, he was being paid by the department. The department had given, from what I could tell, 10 million rand we did a promotion of access to information request on them, and they eventually submitted the documentation showing the bank, two bank transfers, one of, I think, 7 million and another of 3 million into Mono's account. You know, the original story was no that, you know, Mono's paying for it all, that turned out to be untrue. Then when I did another promotion of access to information request into the, the recon of how he'd spent that money, then there were these fake invoices everywhere, And the fake invoices amounted to about 4 million of that 10 million. It's just completely disappeared nobody knows where it went to there are some shelf companies that it supposedly went to but the people who run the shelf companies denied that they ever received any money like that they also denied that they ever produced the invoices that were part of the documentation of how the money was spent you know the one architect who supposedly was paid 360000 you know i think he had a small consultation fee of about 20000 but certainly not 360000 and when he looked at the invoice, that was sitting in the Department of Arts and Culture's file. He was like, ah, that's not my invoice. Then there were various other people who also I sent them their invoices. They were like, no, I've never seen anything like this. This is not my invoice.
0: So what transpired after that?
1: There was a very effective cover-up job done by Victor Glamini and the PR around Mona. And, you know, there were a few stories and a few papers, but it was very difficult to publish the story. Mail and Guardian wouldn't publish it. Independent newspapers published it eventually after Ivor Powell kicked up a stink Not much has come of it The only good thing that came out of all of that is that you know now the Venice Biennale We work in the correct way and what happens at Venice is something that you know that there is a independent curator who has chosen one or two artists to go and represent the country, and the department pays a certain amount, and that that recon is scrutinised correctly.
0: Mm, yeah, has Mona faced any um, repercussions from this ordeal?
1: I think originally people gave, seemed to give him or said they gave him a bit of a wide berth. But now, I mean, no, it doesn't seem like it. I open my curtains every morning and to discover that his gallery is right in front of me in Cape Town. But he seems to have been, broadly speaking, forgiven. You know, but uh, to be quite honest, that is entirely consistent with the country that we live in.
0: Yeah. So, Matthew, how does it feel to be the person who exposes these people, the stories, the structures? Do you think you've made enemies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, that there are many people who don't like me. Um, I'm not sure that we would have got on anyway. So it's no great (laughs) loss as as friends are concerned. I don't see myself as a on a crusade or anything like that. I don't I don't see myself. I mean, you use the word champion. I, I found that like deeply uncomfortable to say. You know, as somebody was trying to say to me the other day, oh, you have a sort of, you know, this strange moral high ground. And I said to him, I I don't. I just have a very ordinary sense of morality. And it's (laughs) very normal. I think, you know, when people are doing bad things, I think it's wrong and I feel the need to speak up about it. I don't think that is what I find odd is that people think of that as being odd.
0: Let's go back to Artthrob. You worked as the editor of this online art publication until 2015, and uh, you went to the UK just after to do your PhD. What year did you actually start at Artthrob? How many years were you there for? You took over from Michael Smith, right? Yeah. When did you start?
1: So I started as the kind of news editor there, I think, in 2010 or 2011. Everything sort of became quite cloudy as to who was doing what. And, and eventually Michael decided that, you know, being up in Joburg and everybody else being down in Cape Town it essentially kind of be better for Artrob to be, you know, run by a group of people in one place. It also was in, you know, because, you know, you have your ups and you have your downs. You get a lot of money in one year and then you can't seem to scrape together a penny the next.
0: Mm. What was the main funding source for Artrob, or is the main funding source was one?
1: it's selling prints um, so people who donate prints to Artthrob then that is it's, and then also there's a little bit of advertising through galleries and a little bit of Google ads which I don't think really produce too much mm. um, but yeah those are the kind of main but the mainstream is, are the prints and, and I mean it was actually Sue Williamson started that and I mean it was actually an act of complete genius in that yes. it has managed to keep throb relatively independent, and you know even when we were going through, and we quite often went through when I ran at crises of gallerists saying, you know, we advertise with you and we don't think you've been fair to us in this review or, you know, saying bad things about so and so. Um, You know, we always were in some senses a little bit kind of fireproofed from some of that. And we could walk away from them if they did pressurize us too much.
0: Yeah, it's a very clever business model.
1: It has worked very well. And I mean, I think, you know, the only aspect of it is that once you've got an artist who donates work to you, then you're a little bit, sort of conscious of not being too critical of them but I mean that Mm. actually has never really occurred. No artist has ever said I want my artworks back you've been horrible to me (laughs) (laughs) kind of scenario so yeah I mean it was it's been a a fantastic model for them and it still it still goes today and
0: well done. In relation to what is happening in the, the South African art scene currently what do you think is exciting and what do you think is concerning?
1: I think concerning, what I find concerning is, you know, just how market driven everything is. Everything is about making money and art by its very nature is not about only making money. I mean, sure, of course, artists have to live. They have to have, you know, money coming in. I don't deny that. But the process of making art and the the ideas behind making art have absolutely nothing to do with money. Um, I also find it concerning that the only alternative to that is doing funded projects which you get funded by an institution of some kind, whether it be, you know, the National Arts Council or Provisia or whatever, that also is problematic because you're also making art in some ways within a certain kind of framework. Those are two things that I find concerning and I think they dampen down individual artistic practice. What is positive about the art world? I think there are a young group of artists and a young group of people in South Africa and in the world who are questioning just how things have been run in the past. And I think that is a positive. You know, I think this questioning that is going on at the moment is good. You know, people who are turning their backs on the structures of the past, I think, is a good thing. There's now some impetus to sort of subvert what's going on. My only concern with that is if you are going to subvert something, you can't then join the institution that you are trying to subvert. You know, subverting something in a commercial gallery is meaningless um, to me. If I could offer what I believe, you know, try not to be part of those institutions. Try not to accept that those institutions are the only places that you can go to to express what you want to express.
0: Thank you, Matthew, for joining me for this episode. It was really interesting chatting about the industry in this way. Be sure to follow Unframed Podcast on Facebook and Instagram to be kept up to date with the latest episodes. Feel free to email me at unframedpodcast at gmail.com for feedback and suggestions for future conversations and talks. Till next time, bye.